open with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of Leviticus. We'll be in Leviticus chapter 19 today. If you don't have a copy of the Bible with you, that's okay. We've got one that you can borrow if you'd like. should be within arm's reach. It's the black Bible and the pew rack in front of you. Um, The reading we'll do in a moment will be up on the screen behind me, so you should be able to read that just fine. And uh, as it is, you're welcome just to listen to the sermon and let it hit you. I'll be reading and engaging with Scripture as we go along. Well, that word holiness, what comes to mind when you hear the word holiness? Uh, A super spiritual class of people, the the kind of people whose work is probably uh, at the church, church church people's work. Um, Pastors who who don't work with their hands because they're always praying with their hands, doing that spiritual kind of thing. Maybe you hear holiness and you think of the really proud people, really good at keeping rules, really happy with themselves that they keep them, uh, making rules to keep and for others to keep. Or maybe you hear holiness and you think super boring, like holiness is not doing things I might want to do, uh, and if it's fun, that's not allowed. Well, I'm not sure what, what comes into your mind when you hear the word holiness, but like so many terms and ideas that are floating around in, in the church and and outside that are loaded with all kinds of meaning, our purpose in, in our weekly preaching is to let the Word of God renew our minds, which sometimes means letting it decide the terms and give us the terms and fill old terms with new and biblical meaning. Well, this morning we come to a crucial chapter in the Bible on holiness and what it means to be holy. The Old Testament and the New will call God's people to be holy as He is holy. So, let's read together Leviticus chapter 9, 19 and see what the Lord has for us today. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols to make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. When you offer a sacrifice of peace offering to the Lord, you shall offer it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten the same day you offer it for or on the day after, and anything left over until the third day shall be burned up with fire. If it's eaten at all on the third day, it's tainted, it will not be accepted, and everyone who eats it will bear his iniquity because he's profaned what is holy to the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from his people. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip the vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. But you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor. 
or defer to the great. But in righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. You shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. If a man lies sexually with a woman who is a slave assigned to another man and yet ransomed or given her freedom, and yet not yet ransomed or given her freedom, a distinction shall be made. They shall not be put to death because she was not free, but he shall bring his compensation to the Lord to the entrance of the tent of meeting, a ram for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering before the Lord for his sin that he has committed. He shall be forgiven for the sin that he has committed. When you come into the land and plant any kind of tree for food, then you shall regard its fruit as forbidden. Three years it shall be forbidden to you. It must not be eaten. And in the fourth year, all its fruit shall be holy, an offering of praise to the Lord. But in the fifth year, you may eat of its fruit to increase its yield for you. I am the Lord your God. You shall not eat any flesh with blood in it. You shall not interpret omens or tell fortunes. You shall not round off the hair of your temples or mar the edges of your beard. You shall not make cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. Do not profane your daughter by making her a prostitute, lest the land fall into prostitution and the land become full of depravity. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Do not turn to mediums or necromancers and do not seek them out and so make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man and you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall do him no wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as a native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. You shall do no wrong in judgment, in measures of length or weight or quantity. You shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah, and a just hin. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And you shall observe all my statutes and my rules and do them. I am the Lord. Well, this is the Bible's most famous chapter that you have never heard of. Never heard of it. Uh, We've heard of some of these chapters, especially by now, Leviticus chapter 16. We should all know what that is if you've been with us for the last number of weeks. It's the middle of the first five books of the Bible. Uh, Thematically, It's that moment when one goat takes all of our sins into the wilderness and the next goat goes all the way into the presence of God representing us. And it's the big moment of resolution to the question raised at the very beginning of the Bible when sin entered into the world. How will we get back in with God? And Adam and his race have been, whether they knew to put it this way or not, trying to find a way back past those flaming cherubim that guarded the way into the presence of God. And so in chapter 16, on the Day of Atonement, that especially famous day, we saw our way back. 
Oh, it's a shadow of what's to come. It was just one man and just one day a year. And the sins would need to be forgiven again. Oh, but it was that, obviously, central and most important day. And structurally, it's in the book of Leviticus, which is in the middle of the first five books of the Bible. And, and it's in the middle of the book of Leviticus. And it's in the middle of the middle on purpose. That day is famous for a reason. But this chapter, chapter 19, no one talks about chapter 19. And yet we quote it all the time. This chapter, verse 18 specifically, I'm sure you heard it, amid all of these other foreign and sometimes strange type of commands, some commands you're like, oh, I'm I'm super glad that's in the Bible, proud of that one. And then the next one, really wish that one wasn't in the Bible, don't know what it means. Uh, But this one right here, verse 18, um, you shall not bear a grudge, uh, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. I thought that was Jesus' command. He copied that from Leviticus, which is exactly what he did. In terms of what we have recorded from the mouth and the lips and the teaching of Jesus, this is the most quoted verse. So there you go. Leviticus chapter 19, the most quoted verse by our Lord. And of course, it's picked up in the rest of the New Testament and by the apostles in in different ways. So this is a famous chapter that you have never heard about. It's also a frustrating chapter. I mean, look, in in verse 19, right after that great one, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. We have that command about not, you know, breeding different kinds of cattle or sowing different kinds of seed in the field or wearing garments made of cloth of two kinds. And and, um, you just intuit, polyester is okay. Because you've never heard a preacher rail against polyester. Even the ones that like to make up commands, they weren't making up commands. Well, maybe they were about polyester, but... You know, two kinds of fabric, what is this? I'm sure there's something complicated going in the Bible, which means that for me today, it's fine. And yet, how does that work exactly? We won't get into all of that as we've been exploring it in previous weeks. But just a reminder that not every command here on the page of chapter 19 or the book of Leviticus is, is doing the same thing or is there for the same reason. We said last week, you have... Some commands that are according to God's creation design, so a command not to murder or against adultery, well, whether we had the Mosaic Covenant or not, those were in force. In fact, we have those kinds of commands before the Mosaic Covenant. And yet there are some commands that are, we could say, according to God's redemption design. They serve a specific purpose, maybe to separate the people of God in a cultural way, out from among the nations. And that may be part of what's going on in verse 19. So you don't have the same motivations for every command. Even some of God's creation design commands, some of them are straightforward. Last week concerning adultery. But even this week, we have some commands that are are aimed at the care of the poor. And while we're not an agrarian society, we, we intuit that there's something there for us, so even some of these commands are culturally situated in a fairly specific way. And this old covenant was written for its first readers in an agrarian society. And our new covenant is written for us in our age. And there are sometimes ways we need to, to uh, translate a command into our immediate context. We don't get out of 
a command to care for the poor on Jesus' lips just because exactly how that's done in his day isn't maybe exactly how it's done in, in our day. So you've got commands here that are here for different reasons, and, and even if that doesn't make sense of everything in a moment, that's, that's at least a start and, and helpful. Well, the Scripture says here at the head, God would have his people to be holy. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am I'm holy. And we get commands like that in our New Testament, these as commands. Uh, being holy as he is holy, as he is righteous, purified as he is pure. Walking with him. There, there's... There's a sense in which we are to be like God in his nature and to imitate him. And this seems to be a a, a given, a command, a first order of of business for those who have been made his. Those who belong to him will be like him and become like him because they are his. So this morning we're exploring this matter of holiness by means of Leviticus chapter 19. And apparently, it wasn't obvious to the readers when they would hear, uh, you shall be holy for I am holy, I, your, I the Lord your God am holy, what precisely that would mean. You look at verse 37 here at the end of the chapter, and you shall observe all my statutes and all my rules and do them. I am the Lord. And we have Psalms that meditate on the statutes and the rules of the Lord and speak of them as honey and as more valuable than gold and and in all these beautiful, incredible terms, and when we, when we see God as he is, and when we, when we have our head and our heart on straight, these things are beautiful. And yet they need to be spelled out, rules and statutes, and, and the observance of them. And he has a whole chapter here of the kinds of things. It's not exhaustive. It's like a little collection. It's like a collection of examples uh, of, of what it would mean to be holy as God is holy. And even this chapter, you can lay most of the Ten Commandments along one of the verses here. They're not all exactly represented. But we could say that this chapter reflects the Ten Commandments or the Decalogue given in Exodus chapter 20. In fact, Exodus 20 begins as this chapter begins with a reminder, I am the Lord your God. And here at the end, who brought you out of the land of of Egypt. And what God has done for us, even though this old covenant couldn't complete the work of transformation in us, what God has done for us in redemption, even in this shadowy way, always precedes what he calls us to in transformation, even what he enables. Be holy for I am holy. We could conclude from that simple phrase that as we now work through the chapter to consider specific commands in this long list, that they're teaching us something about what God is like. That a command to be holy down here on the ground floor in this specific way reflects something of what God is like invisibly and in heaven. And so we're going to meditate on these commands to consider what it would mean for us to be holy And along the way, we'll reflect on what God is like in light of these commands. They are intended to instruct us. We'll work through it in four parts here. 
Uh, the first verses, let me, let me walk you through at a really high level how the chapter is put together. And then our sermon will divide along those ways. So we have a first section here in verses 1 through 8. That first command to be holy as I'm holy. And then a collection of commands that are largely having to do with his worship and sacrifices at the tabernacle. And then verses 9 through 18 is a collection of commands concerning love for neighbor. And that's how that collection of commands culminates. Then, starting in verse 19, really to the end of the chapter, we have miscellaneous commands. There's some connection between one and another and another. There's some kind of flow, but it's not terribly tidy. I even read this chapter and thought, this kind of seems like a first draft of the Ten Commandments. Like, if I was just doing a first draft, just get it out. Get it out. This is all the stuff that might come out. And I think, well, if I have to pick 20, what would they be? And then if I had to pick 10, what would they be? And the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, has a very beautiful order and symmetry to it. It could even be summarized. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus summarizes it this way. This chapter, not so neat. But as it is in life, right? As we advise one another and go about our daily life and we collect applications of simple commands in in the scriptures, well, we end up with a bit of a mishmash. And this is something of what this is. There are even instances in here where we're not quite sure what was going on precisely. And we can reconstruct the scenario to try to discern what's happening. And we'll do do our best this morning and I I won't belabor any one point. It is a long list. All right. Well, since we've got a long list, Let's get into our four divisions of the sermon. I said the text is cut up about three ways. I'm going to add one more point using verse 37 to wrap it up. You shall observe my statutes and do them. I am the Lord. And this morning's sermon may feel a little more listy than usual. I've got a lot of lists. And I thought, I need to tell them I have a lot of lists coming. And I thought, I have a great reason to have a lot of lists. The whole chapter is a list. God gives lists. So your preacher will give you some lists this morning. Well, verses 1 through 8. What do we get from verses 1 through 8? Well, this simple truth concerning holiness, that holiness begins with the Lord. Holiness begins with the Lord. Don't think for a second there's anything like holiness, biblically speaking, apart from the God who is holy and apart from A meaningful, personal relationship with the God who is holy and apart from the grace and the mercy that comes from the holy God of heaven who has set his love on us, the holiness begins with the Lord. And that's where it begins in this chapter. You'll notice the first thing we get after the call to be holy, you shall be holy, is a reason, a ground. For I, the Lord your God, am holy. So very simply, why should we be holy? Well, we we need an answer to that, apparently. And the answer to that will help power the kind of obedience the chapter calls us to. Why should we be holy? Well, because of who God is in himself is holy. And what is holiness but his, the sum total of his 
attributes and nature, pictured in fire that consumes. God is holy other, we could say, not like us. Such unpoetic ways to put it. How else would you describe the sun in all of its beaming glory? Well, not like us. No, God is holy. And he is in himself intrinsically holy. And connected to this is, the way the term is used, is his ethical purity. The purity of his purposes and his motives, his intentions, his life, his actions. There are no impurities in him, in his nature, and there are no impurities in his actions, in his dispositions, in his ways toward us. And it is not in that first intrinsic other holiness that we are to be like him, although we are to be set apart for him and unto him and by him. This chapter pushes that truth down to the ground of daily life in our ethical manner and ways. We're to be holy because of who he is in himself and because of who he is for us. For I, the Lord, your God, am holy. He didn't say, I, God, am holy. No, he said, I, the Lord, Yahweh. That's the personal name that he gave to his people through Moses in order that they might know him as their God, their personal God, that God who has set his steadfast love and mercy upon them. I, the Lord, you know me. You are mine and I am yours. The Lord, your God, am holy. So you be holy. And why? Because of who I am and because who I am for you and because of who you are in me because I've set my grace and my love upon you. And he doesn't let them get away from this. I am the Lord or I am the Lord, your God, or the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt. I am the Lord is just shorthand for that longer version, 16 times in this chapter, once about every other verse. Now, it's a point of emphasis that God is our covenant Lord who has set his affection and love on us and in grace has come after us, has redeemed us, has forgiven us, is the God who calls us to be holy. We can trust him. And what a wonderful prospect it is. That we could be holy as he is holy. Imagine how this would be heard. For it was his, the glory of his holiness that consumed the animal out of the tent. It is the glory of his holiness that means we must stay away because of our sins. But he will forgive our sins and draw us to him. And then he will make us holy as he is holy. And as we've said, the first 16 chapters of this book, when... The language of holiness comes up. It's associated with the tabernacle and associated things. The objects of the tabernacle or the, or the priests. But through chapter 16, and once we've drawn near to God, symbolically and in a representative way through Aaron on the Day of Atonement, now, now the book turns to address our ethical life in, in the language of holiness. In other words... It's actually possible for us to 
Not just draw near to God having been forgiven, but to become more like Him. And in that way, the book of Leviticus represents a movement away from God, outside the tent where Moses can't get in, increasingly into more in deeper intimacy with God. So into the tent in chapter 16. And now a transformation of the people is to begin. Now he instructs them in how they may live so that they may be like him and so enjoy the blessing of his life and presence and fellowship. This book is all about getting back with God. We don't just want to get back to Eden with our sin. We want to get back to Eden and leave sin behind. And so it is that one day when we see God as He is and we see Christ as He is and we are transformed, it's not just in the new creation that we won't sin because we'll have chains on our hands or somehow be technically, robotically kept from sinning. It's that we will actually be deeply and profoundly and personally and thoroughly transformed to love what He loves because we love Him as He is in all of His holiness. And so we will worship for him forever in the splendor of holiness. And that will be reflected in our thoughts and our loves and our interactions forever. And in chapter 19, we get a start on this in a shadowy way. So holiness begins with the Lord. He's the reason for it. For I am the Lord your God, I'm holy. He's also the source of it. Look at verse 3. And every one of you shall revere his father and mother. Some instruction for the kids along the way. Job number one for children is to revere and to obey their father and mother who will instruct them in the ways of the Lord and the knowledge of the Lord. And you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Look verse Look at verse 30 here. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. The Sabbaths, uh, uh, we'll get to Israel's calendar later, but there was a holy place, the tabernacle, and there were holy times, the Sabbath. And it's in connection with the Lord and proximity to the Lord and time and place that we are transformed. Jesus addressed behavior. But Jesus drove the point deeper. We commit adultery in our heart, we've committed adultery. If we lust in our heart, we've committed adultery, he said. But it wasn't so much in those New Testament verses that are so famous that Jesus was adding to or advancing on the Old Covenant as much as he was interpreting it. We will see that there are deeply internal things going on and expected and commanded even in this chapter. And that deep inside change is not a, this isn't a matter of obedience you can staple onto the old person. The kind of change that God brings about in our lives that he intends to bring about in your life is a deep and an inward change. And he doesn't merely hurl a command at you and you catch it and read it and then get about trying and keeping it. He empowers and he enables you to hear and to obey his commands by being with you, by giving himself to you. And so this mention of Sabbaths and his sanctuary, where the Lord has come to dwell among his people, 
He's set up house, shop, tent in the neighborhood. And now his presence among the people will transform the people so that as he gives them commands, they keep them. And of course, this presence is deficient and so will their obedience be deficient. My point is just simply that he's not only the reason for this call to holiness, but he is the source of any holiness that they will know. It says to not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. Well, that's a surefire way to to work in the wrong direction. You won't become holy by trusting in other gods and worshiping other gods. Psalm 115 comes to mind and expresses the logic of this. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name. Give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. We worship you. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. That's the God that we worship. Their idols are silver and gold. They're the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they don't speak. They have eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, but they don't hear. Noses, but don't smell. And they have hands, but they can't feel. They have feet, but they can't walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Here it is. Those who make them become like them. So who all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. In other words, do not turn to idols to make yourself like any gods of cast metal or you'll become like them. Your soul will shrivel Is your soul shriveling? Maybe you're worshiping the wrong God. Maybe you're obeying the wrong statutes. You can tell what God you're obeying by the rules and the statutes that you're keeping. Every culture and every person has has rules and statutes. Holiness uh, is a word associated with the especially religious. But, But holiness, if we conceive of it as becoming like God and Becoming like your God, holiness is all the rage, even in our own day and age. Holiness codes are all the rage. Uh, What is a holiness code but but what you read on a bumper sticker or what you've put in your your Twitter bio um, or the little sign you put put in your yard? There are all, all manner of ways in which holiness codes are projected and shared and outlined and kept. And they all reflect something of the God we're worshiping. The God of self being that great God of our own present day as God, the Lord God, and anything transcendent and anything beyond the material world has been removed and sidelined and maligned. So the self is all that's left. You and yourself are your God. And so if your holiness code flows from yourself, your holiness code is basically be yourself. Be true to yourself. And so you will become like the God that you worship. And your soul will shrivel. So he begins with God, the reason for holiness, the source of holiness. And he is as well the goal of holiness. This is why he has rescued his people out of Egypt for their sake and for the sake of his own name and glory and joy, that they wouldn't serve Egypt and Pharaoh, but would come to his mountain and serve him. 
And he would give them his law and give them himself. And so the Lord has given us himself that we might serve him and delight in him. He is the reason and the source and the goal of holiness. Don't let yourself think on holiness apart from thinking on the Lord who has brought you out of your darkness and your sin and death to himself. Holiness begins with the Lord. But it doesn't end there. Holiness leads, in the second place, to love. Now, this, this collection of commands in verses 9 through 18, I'm going to read a few verses here from the book of James, and I just want to see if you recognize any of them. We read this earlier uh, in the sermon, of course. You don't have to turn there, but I'll mention the verses I'm reading in James 5, 12. Above all, brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. Let your yes be your yes and your no be your no. Behold the wages of the laborer, in verse 4 of chapter 5, who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. James chapter 2, brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. If a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing comes and you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, you sit here and to the one who is poor, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not made distinctions amongst yourselves and become judges with, and here's what he says, evil thoughts? That's what the Lord thinks of partiality. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. And finally, in James 2, verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law concerning the Scriptures, quote, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, unquote, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. We could go on with other books. Back to Leviticus. That's just a survey of some of the, the, the commands of James on New Covenant believers. And he's reasoning with them. And you can tell that the background for his understanding of what holiness looks like, what a righteous life or purity looks like, or a life of love, for love is from God, looks like, he's getting that from Leviticus 19. God has not assumed we know exactly how this works out, so he's given us lists. And in chapter, verses 9 through 18, we get a, a number of, we get a list. We get some flesh on what it means to love our neighbor as ourself. And so let's work through this list together. The center of the list is verse 18. And we'll see that this matter of who our neighbor is was, was a question answered by Leviticus before Jesus answered it for his uh, opponents. And here we're going to see love of neighbor for the, the poor and for the, those being defrauded and for brothers and enemies and those accused in the court of law, even the deaf and, and the blind. 
So what does it mean to love our neighbors since holiness leads to love? Well, it means loving our neighbors with our things, with our things. Verses 9 and 10, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall reap your field right up to the edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. This was a way in which the Lord, through his people, provided for and cared for uh, the poor, those who did not have property, those traveling through, those who were destitute for one reason or another. There are a variety of ways in which someone could lose their property and be without home, and this was a way that they would care for those who were in such a situation. They wouldn't, they wouldn't reap their harvest all the way to the edges. The edges were open, and, and the leftovers were on the ground too, and those could, be, those could be gathered up. And what does this tell us about our God except that He is a generous and a giving God? And He, he cares for us in our times and circumstances of destitution. And, and as a testimony to the nations all about, Israel's way of caring for their poor was an indication of the God they served. This was an agrarian society, and so this is how they were specifically commanded to care for the poor. And by way of simple application, we ought to have our eyes and our ears and our hearts out for opportunities that intersect with our own lives to help those who are in a particularly vulnerable, destitute circumstances. And the closer they are to us in proximity, the closer we are with our knowledge of the circumstances and the need, the more it behooves us to do what we can. Now, this passage would not permit every apparently kind act if it is done merely with good intentions. We live in a particularly complicated world with a particularly complicated economy, and there are ways to structure care for the poor that work against their good. All that has to be kept in mind. There's no straight line from this passage to a government uh, policy for the poor. This was a command for individuals and on the ground around the corner from the poor, or as they came through to care. It assumed a truth of private property, and so a a government that seeks to confiscate individual private property and so to redistribute it with a goal that is much greater and more farther reaching and ambitious than caring for the poor, but to see the poor brought into an equal situation uh, is not justified by this passage. Jesus himself said the poor will always be with us. So our, our purpose is not to eradicate poverty. The Lord will do that one day. But to care for those who are in need, who are within reach, and to be eager for the opportunity to do so, for it is the very heart of God. So ponder this passage and what that means for you. Maybe that means tending to the need of a family member across the country. They're close to you even though they're far away. Or, or a neighbor who has fallen on especially hard times. Maybe even in the course of your work, you own a business and you see things around you and have the opportunity 
to employ somebody in, in a special kind of an arrangement to help them. And I know some of you and I have known good businessmen and business owners over the years who have done, to some extent, risky things and expensive things to help. And sometimes with great fruitfulness and at other times without it. There are all manner of ways to apply this, but the simple takeaway for us needs to be, and then you can do the rest of the work in your own life, that the Lord is a generous God who meets the needs of those in destitute circumstances, and so His people ought to, as He does, have a generous heart and seek to meet the needs of those who are in desperate circumstances, especially those who are of the household of God. And if you've been around here long enough at Heritage, you know the stories. And maybe you've been the recipient personally of the generosity of your brothers and sisters in this church who have given to you and cared for you in profound and costly ways and with big, full hearts of love that testify to the name and the glory of God and His holiness. And so to the extent that we take care of our our own who are in destitute circumstances. We testify to, to our neighbors in the community and, and the whole world concerning the holiness of God. See that? The holiness of God, how great and majestic and other He is, is actually, you, you get a window into it, you get a look at it in the generosity of a church and caring for its destitute and a Christian for the poor. So, We share the holiness of God. We reflect His holiness in love as we love with our our things. Also, as we love with truthfulness. Now, verse 11 and 12. On to a different topic. You shall not steal. Why am I saying truthfulness? You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely. And so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. What I imagine happens here, stealing's not okay. I'm putting the accent on truthfulness. Someone steals and gets caught and tells a fib, tells a story, has a lie to cover it. Have you ever lied to cover a sin? Kids? Adults? And then it goes a little deeper. Now they're in court. In the next verse, 12, you shall not swear by my name falsly. Oh, the stakes are raised, doesn't want to get caught. I swear on the name of my God, I haven't done it. And so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. Commit now to speak the truth. Commit now to speak the truth in the moment when your sin is found out. Decide now, Christian, because you'll sin. But decide now that in the moment... When you're caught, if you haven't confessed your sins as you ought to have, that you will tell the truth when asked about it. Do not steal, and then don't deal falsely, and don't lie to one another about it. It may lead you to swear against God's very name and profane the name of your God. I am the Lord, he says. All Christians are the ones who turn from sin but even as we continue in sin because we are sinners and not fully, fully fixed and redeemed yet, are the ones who nevertheless walk in truth, confessing our, our sins and walking in forgiveness and fellowship and in, in the light of the truth that we are sinners and God is holy. So we love with our things and we love with truthfulness. And now we move from 
a relationship where, in verses 11 and 12, we may have had equals, now to a relationship in verse 13 and 14, where one has more strength or power than the other. And so we love with the strength that we have. You shall not oppress or defraud your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. So to defraud or oppress or or rob your neighbor, to defraud would be to keep something back that they are owed. And to rob would be to take something from them that is theirs. Moses gets it from two angles here. Then he moves on to get a little more specific. If you were a wage earner and you worked for your, your wages... You would expect to get paid at the close of the day, and you'd need that money at the close of the day because you have to go buy food and so to support your family. And it would be a cruelty and a form of fraud to hold back the wages of the worker through the night until the morning. Now, in that, in that culture, in that moment, doing right as one who had the strength of position as the employer and the owner would be to pay the fair wage and to pay the fair wage on time as planned. You apply that to your circumstances. I probably need to catch up with my kids in allowance, although it's not exactly a payment for work situation. We make them buy a bunch of the things that we might have bought for them anyways. But sometimes they say, hey, Dad, it's been a while. Like, oh, i got to talk to your mom and see where we're at. If you're an employer, careful with your books. This applies to your books. You owe someone money right now? You have a crafty scheme and a complicated story that depends on a number of sensitive angles and interpretations as to why you don't owe this or that? Pray to the Lord concerning this and Look down at the page and ask yourself whether you're withholding wages. In your circumstances, whether you're defrauding, holding something back that belongs to somebody, or whether you have taken something from somebody that belongs to them. Well, then we have this next verse, 16. Excuse me, verse 14. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear the Lord your God. Now, that's interesting. How does that apply? Well, I think all these go together. The hired worker is in a vulnerable position. The deaf can't hear. Don't curse them and mock them. The blind can't see. Don't put a stumbling block in in front of them. No, fear God. You don't fear the deaf or the blind. You fear God. And they're made in God's image, and you'll treat them as God would have you. And you'll honor them and esteem them, and you won't curse them, and you won't cause them to stumble. And we love with our strength. We love with our legal judgments, verses 15 and 16. Do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. So that's deferring to the poor. Why would we be tempted to do that? Well, out of compassion. It's actually an injustice to defer to the person in a weaker circumstance, in a legal scenario, out of mere compassion. As it is unjust to to defer to those who are great out of maybe fear for them or a reverence or or an esteem or a desire for their favor. 
James will apply the second, but the first applies just the same. We get many commands like this in the Old Testament concerning the poor and our legal judgments show no partiality. And we love even when we're wronged, verses 17 through 18. Oh, let me jump up to 16 real quick. So don't go around as a slanderer among your people. That's connected to the legal judgment thing just above it. So in the course of court proceedings, this would mean not running around throwing one of the people under the bus so as to stir up public opinion against the life of your neighbor. And so this would have all kinds of applications. But minimally, patience as it concerns legal proceedings when one is accused of one crime or another. Protesting outside of a courthouse or a justice's house would be, would be a disgusting sin. Let's not get caught up in those things. Verse 17 now, we love even when we're wrong. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly. What's the opposite of hating your brother in your heart? See, there's that's an internal ask from, from Moses. Well, the opposite of that would be to reason frankly with your brother. So instead of stewing on, stewing on how they're wrong and what they've done to you, and I promise you, your brother, your neighbor, your family member will do you wrong. Will give you reason to make them an enemy. Well, the opposite of that, the way to be productive with that, the way to be holy when wronged against and tempted to hate your brother would be to reason with them, to speak with them, to rebuke with them, rebuke them for their sake, but also your sake, lest you incur sin because of him. So here's what this means. You may live with someone who sins against you. I do, although I can't think of anything that she's done to sin against me. I know my wife lives lives with someone who sins against her. You may live with someone who sins against you. I know you do, if you live with anybody. You certainly work with people who sin against you. You're friends with people who sin against you. Their sins against you are not permission for your sins. Their sins against you are 100% their fault for which they are culpable. And your sin of hate in your heart against your brother or sister or spouse, or friend, are your sins. So reason with, rebuke the person sinning against you and engage them as a, as a way of fighting hate in your own heart. And to the extent that you have stewed and not been creatively productive in that relationship, you may have sinned against them and will stand before the Lord for your sins. There's a lot to say to our own marriages in this little verse right here. Don't hate your brother or sister in your heart, friends. You shall not take vengeance or, or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. Here it is. Here it is for your marriages. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So that's how holiness leads to love. Now, in this third section, I'll just be especially brief and stitch some things together here. The takeaway from verses 15, excuse me, 19 to 34, is that holiness encompasses all of life. It encompasses all of life. It encompasses everyday life. That command about fabrics and such had to do with separating the people from the nations. And there's some indications that one thing that was special about the divine realm was the mixtures of things. In Ezekiel, we have, we have these 
heavenly creatures, which are the mixtures of creatures. And we have another place in Deuteronomy where seed is sown and now the ground is holy when two types of seed are sown. And then the fabrics for the priests were a mixture of things. And so, and so a way of keeping a distinction and teaching Israel in all of her moments and interactions and decisions that the Lord is one thing and they are another, uh, this rule applied. But it doesn't apply today. But in their everyday life, they were to consider God as holy. In marriage, in this verses 20 through 22, we have something of an, of an ambiguous scenario concerning a slave, someone lying sexually with her, and the owner of the slave. Servant may even be as well a, tra- a translation. There's not a one-to-one between that institution and our own country's history here. In most cases, a woman would be betrothed to a man. Marriages were arranged. And if they weren't a slave, you would have both would be convicted of adultery and put to death. But in this case, I think the takeaway is she is not to be put to death and he's to bring a guilt offering. In other words, I don't think this is a random scenario that happened to be on Moses' mind, but in the same way that he says, love your neighbor as yourself, and there's an accent on the common Israelite, there's also an echo of your treatment of those who are outsiders, and often slaves were outsiders, or accent on the weak, and certainly those would be servants under your care would be weak, and this little passage right here is for her protection when violated. So in marriage, it extends to sexual relations. At the table in verses 23 through 25, we have that bit about plants and food and waiting to eat the fruit. Once they get in the land, this is a reminder that God has given them all of their provisions and all of the food that they will ever eat. As it concerns their future, verses 26 and 31 and and these necromancers and mediums, there was a temptation to follow the nations around them and going to these spiritist people with promises concerning the future and seeing into the invisible realm. And Israel was not to take part in that, but to trust the Lord. It extends to suffering and loss in verses 27 and 28 and that bit about cutting yourself and tattoos and the beard or ways of expressing mourning and grief in the face of loss and perhaps someone's death or even trying to contact them or relate with them into the invisible realm of death through cutting and tattoos, and that was not to be. Tattoos are fine. In that context, they would have been an expression of distrust in the Lord. In poverty and in wealth, don't sell your daughter even in your greatest poverty into prostitution, the Lord's kindness to protect his people with that command. And there are other commands concerning your Consider your economic relations, doing no wrong in judgment with measures of length and quantity and weight. And in all of your relationships, a good attitude, honoring the elderly and being humble before the sojourner, for you were a sojourner at one time. He says, holiness extends to all of life. That's the point. The takeaway from this passage is that the Lord is the ground and the beginning of holiness. And the goal of holiness, what it looks like when it's pressed all the way down to the ground of life in your relationships is it looks like the love of God on display in love for your neighbor. 
It extends to all of life. It's not just for the spiritual people prayed to be, paid to be pastors. We don't pray all day, by the way. We do pray. We pray without ceasing. We all should. But you know what I mean. No, everyday life is a, is a context for holiness in life. And finally, holiness is possible. Verse 37. You shall observe all my statutes and all my rules and do them. In a shadowy way, God's intention was for his people to obey him, but it wasn't what it should be, and they weren't what they could be. And ultimately, Israel as a nation would fail as her leaders would fail in keeping commandments. But with the new covenant comes the spirit and a new capacity to hear God's word and respond. I want to read to you a passage from 1 Peter, and then we will pray and get to the Lord's table. Here in 1 Peter, where we spent so many months together, we have a call to be holy, but hear it in context. The context of the resurrection life born again in the heart of the Christian. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, Peter says, and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Christ. As obedient children, obedience... Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if, I call on, if you call on him who is Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from your feudal ways, inherited from your fathers, not with the perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Let's pray. Oh, Father, you have called us to yourself, and you have called us out of darkness and into your marvelous light and out of the kingdom of darkness, and into the kingdom of your beloved Son. Out of death and into new life, life in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you have done this by your Spirit, your Holy Spirit by which you've given us new life that can respond to you, that desires to obey you. And so, Father, we thank you for the gift of the forgiveness of sins, and we thank you for the gift of new life in Jesus. And we pray to be a church that manifests and witnesses to your beauty and your majesty and your glory and your holiness through a transformed life. And we pray that in our sojourning, and our exile, that we would abstain from the passions of the flesh and that we would keep our conduct pure among the Gentiles so that when they speak against us as evildoers, nevertheless, they will see our good deeds transformed because of your holiness and glorify you on the day of visitation. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.